Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. We have two of my favorite students ever here with me today. Mm. I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> saying stuff like that. Uh, Cody and Haley were with me last year. They were, I believe, both part of the inaugural podcast that we had with uh, Phil Bennett, who is now a first-year resident in pathology. And uh, the two of you came back to help out during Christmas, and I really, really appreciate that. One of the things that I think is really great about the, the Utah State Hospital is the way that Christmas happens here, and I think both of you felt the same way and asked if you could come back, even though neither of you have any interest in being psychiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness there are great physicians in other specialties, right? Who care about mental health. Who care about mental health, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the two of you as well. How about some introductions? Uh, let's start with you, Cody. Cody, tell us a little bit more than you usually do about yourself, where you're headed after, after a few more months in your fourth year of medical school. Yeah, so I guess a little more about me, other than that I'm from Southern Utah and go to Rocky Vista. I, I think I've shared before that I want to go into family practice. I'm looking to stay kind of in the Mountain West area for my residency. I've looked at Nevada, Colorado, Idaho, some spots in Utah, of course, and Arizona. My, my goal is to kind of stay in this region somewhere close, but find a good program that, that'll kind of get me out of my comfort zone a little bit as well. Um, eventually, I'd like to end up back here somewhere close, somewhere close to family. I think you and I talked about Reno as yeah. a place you might be headed. Yeah, I really like the Reno area. I like Lake Tahoe. seems really beautiful. I, I, <laughs> it might be one of my top choices right now. I think the program also met a lot of the needs that you had. Uh, I think you're interested in doing everything, including delivery, some OBGYN work. Is that correct? Correct, yes. I'd, I'd love to get as much practice and all of that as I, as I can. Now, I, I see your peer over here squirming just a little bit. Wait a minute, family practice delivering babies? <laughs> <laughs> Busted. <laughs> no. Not everybody has access to obstetrical care. It's true. Um, but that's where you're headed. So you're going to help fix that. That is the plan. Is it my turn to introduce myself? Would you please, Haley? <laughs> I'm Haley Shumway. I am a colleague of Cody's. We go to Rocky Vista in southern Utah. I am from northern Utah. Um, in a not-so-little town called Lehigh. Um, my goal is to become an OBGYN, and I've interviewed at places from California to New York City, so I'm not quite sure where I'll end up, but I'm sure that where I end up will be where I'm supposed to go. I want to train as a generalist in OBGYN, so that's all of the labor and delivery. Um, you can do as much primary care as you choose, and then also all the surgery, which is my big interest. Yeah. Do different programs have different exposures to surgery? They do. There's a required amount of surgeries you have to get to become certified as an OBGYN, so you have to hit those numbers. But in regards to the different facilities, they definitely have different exposure. I think where I trained, um, OBGYN surgery might have addressed uh, something like Meg syndrome with the, which is, if I recall correctly, is the um, spread of uterine cancer, is that right? Or ovarian cancer into the peri, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm gonna sound like a terrible psychiatrist because I can't even remember all these uh, terms correctly, but into the, uh, in, into that space, the uh, peri, um, 
<laughs> you guys aren't going to bail me out, are you? No. Uh, peritoneum? Peritoneal space, yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and I, I suspect there are other places where oncology, there would be surgical oncology maybe, and, and you might not get those experiences. How, how do you look into those differences? How do you find what you want um, along those lines? Um, I think all programs have to have some exposure to gynecological oncology. Um, so they, at least all the ones I've interviewed at, have a attending who is a gynecologic oncologist and you do at least a month or two with them. And then if you're further interested in pursuing that subspecialty, then, you know, you can do more electives in that. Okay. But all the gynoc surgeries I've been in on have been incredible and for the most part positive. I feel like there's a lot of good you can do in that realm. It seems like it. Did you, did you, uh, well... We'll stop here with that. Uh, I, I could ask Haley and Cody questions all day long and, and tend just, to. Let's just do a podcast on our futures. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that one of the things that has surprised me is that a lot of students find interest in, in learning how people go around about uh, determining what residency they go into, how they choose residencies, and, and some of the information about that. So I, I have uh, spent a few more minutes on those topics at the beginning, especially when I have fourth-year students who are a lot of the way through the process and have a good sense of, of where they're going and what they're doing. And, and uh, I think you, you two both have that, uh, those qualities. So how about if we start with the podcast then? Let's do it. Uh, let's get into and it. I'll figure out how to mute my phone <coughs> while you're telling us what the <laughs> podcast is. Haley and Cody, you guys developed this together. Uh, why don't you uh, give me details on, on how you came up with this? Right. So we wanted to pick something that would be relevant to both OBGYN and Family Med. Family Med, as you mentioned earlier, not everyone has access to obstetric or gynecologic care, and so it therefore falls on the shoulders of Family Med docs in more rural areas to provide that type of care. Um, and then also women sometimes choose a family doc over an OBGYN if they have you know low-risk pregnancies or if they're just really comfortable, which I think is awesome. So we decided to talk about depression during pregnancy um, and then kind of go into the treatment, um, and adverse effects and all those types of things. I will also add that just as there is difficulty finding OBGYN care in many places, psychiatry care is even more difficult to find in many of those places. So I love this topic. I think, I think I've read, and I, I can't tell you where, that more care is delivered by primary care for treatment of depression than by psychiatrists, and I think it's by far. And I think that's something we've talked about before, so I, I think this is a great topic, looking at how family practice and OBGYN might address treatment of depression in the setting of perinatal mental illness and postpartum depression. I have a list of eight questions here. Uh, the two of you had no idea how this podcast would um, <laughs> Uh, develop. In fact, I think you sent us a, uh, Haley, I think you sent me a structure for the podcast. I did. <laughs> I can't remember if I've ever seen that before or not. Uh, I might not have looked closely. Leave it to me. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with a couple of questions. Okay. okay. With eight questions and we'll see where these take us. Uh, first of all, what is postpartum depression and how does that differ from perinatal depression? This is a good question and something that's high for shelves. So postpartum depression is defined as um, depression within one to three months post-delivery. Uh, it has all the symptoms of depression that have been discussed in other podcasts, sadness, moodiness, um, just kind of emotional uh, 
capability. Um, and then in addition to those things, there's sleep disturbance, anxiety, and then there also may be thoughts of hurting self or baby or partner, hurting somebody who you wouldn't want hurt. The criteria for depression, I'm going to just run over those very quickly. We've used SIGI caps in the past. I think we're making the transition to DICE's gaps. And the reason why is because DICE's gaps actually includes the symptom of I feel depressed, the subjective report of depression. Mm -hmm. uh, so DICE's gaps, uh, depression, changes in interests, concentration changes, energy changes. And we'll maybe mention briefly uh, in a moment some screening tools to help in depression that help where uh, energy changes are common in pregnancy where we can better identify depression um, even though there are some overlapping symptoms that may not be depressive in nature. So energy changes, um, Dice's uh, suicidality, um, gaps, G is guilt, feelings of guilt, A is appetite changes, those can also change in pregnancy both because of nausea or because of uh, hunger cravings, right? Mm -hmm. um, P is psychomotor slowing, and S is sleep changes also easily changed in, uh, in uh, pregnancy, right? So how do we know if somebody is depressed then? So we went through DICE's gaps. We know what the criteria for depression are. There are a couple of screening tools that we might use, and I think you two looked at a couple of those. Any thoughts on that or comments on that? Well, I think I'll talk first about, it's the PHQ-9, it's the, that's the questionnaire that I feel like I've seen most commonly in family practice and just your primary care. It's just a nine question, it covers a lot of the things that we just talked about, the symptoms of depression, and they rate those symptoms on a scale like one through five, or it affects me a lot, or it doesn't affect me at all, and then it's scored and tallied at the end and then it kind of puts you into the like depression or close to depression but it's not specific to to pregnancy that's just like your general practice depression screening tool the other one that i'm not as familiar with that i think haley has seen quite a bit is called the edinburgh postnatal depression scale yeah so this one is given um, OB-GYNs also use the PHQ-9 for their patients who are not pregnant, but once you do become pregnant, as we've mentioned before, a lot of the symptoms of pregnancy overlap with the symptoms of depression, decrease energy, appetite, you have insomnia. There's just so many things that overlap, so it's really hard to tell the difference of am I just pregnant or am I depressed or am I pregnant and depressed? Um, so it's kind of difficult and it's it's really hard to kind of factor out, but once, and this, this Edinburgh postnatal depression scale I've seen use, um, they usually give it to moms, you know, the day after they've delivered, so in the hospital, just to make sure that there's the continuity of care, just to kind of assess where they're at, you know, right after delivery, and then you see your OBGYN six weeks if you've gone through a vaginal birth, um, and they do this screen again. If you had a C-section, it's two weeks post-op visit, um, but they're constantly giving this out to uh, postpartum moms because it is so common. Postpartum depression is very common. Um, so it, it kind of has the same questions as a PHQ-9, but it's just the OB-GYN version of trying to decipher between depression or pregnancy or possibly both. I saw one other tool that was used that I think had better sensitivity and specificity than both of these two tools that we've mentioned, but I'm not sure it's widely used. You also mentioned snowballs to me earlier, and oh, I don't yeah. know what that means. 
So I don't know if every office uses it, just the ones I've been in. It's a handout <clears throat> where if you, I guess, screen positive for postpartum depression on the Edinburgh scale, we hand that out. And it's just ways to cope with the depression um, if you're not interested in medication or in addition to medication to help you out. I think it covers things like, you know, exercise, eating better, how to sleep better, just ideas for um, a new mom and how you might function a little bit better with some help. Excellent. We've talked mostly about postpartum depression. One of the things I like about the PHQ, um, even though it maybe is not as specific in this setting, is that it really is used in so many different places. It becomes a language that everybody understands. And I think it can be used perhaps not in um, postpartum depression only, but it can also be used in perinatal mental health. And when we talk about perinatal mental health, how is that defined? And how is postpartum depression defined? Can you guys give me the distinction between those two things? Well, in my experience, perinatal refers to both before and after delivery, maybe even prior to conception too, just like the whole time frame of becoming pregnant, being pregnant, and delivering, right? It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean while you are pregnant um, I think it includes a lot of those different phases of, of pregnancy and after delivery. I think, and I, I agree. I think there's some variation on this. One of the definitions I looked at included uh, conception through a year after uh, mm -hmm. delivery. Mm -hmm. So perinatal mental health, and I just want to make that very clear, this is very different than postpartum depression. Postpartum depression also has apparently some discussion about what it means. Haley, I think you had a couple of different uh, widely accepted but not completely agreed upon definitions. When, when does postpartum depression start? It's so there's something called postpartum blues and we consider that quote normal. We actually counsel our moms who have just delivered to you know watch for signs of being emotional, crying for no reason. We say these things are normal um, and it can be normal for up to two weeks. If it goes past that or if there ever is thoughts of hurting yourself or your baby, then that steps into postpartum depression. So it's it's basically defined as a month to three months post-delivery, and it can affect you up to a year. Um, but then you have the thoughts of hurting yourself or baby. And then there's postpartum psychosis, which is different than both of those, which is two to three weeks post-delivery. Um, that's similar to these, but... You have delusions, disorganized behavior. Um, it's the question stem where a husband brings in his wife and is saying that she's wandering around at night and just talking about all these delusions and, you know, hurting and harming the child. Um, that's going to be your postpartum psychosis. Or thinking about hurting and harming the child, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Very good. Um, so postpartum depression, one to three months. Very different than the blues. Very different. Which is going to be the first two weeks. Yep and will be more associated with crying. Now, one of the things that surprised me was that postpartum depression, uh, 10 to 15% of women might experience postpartum depression, but only about 5% of women will experience the blues. So if somebody looks like they're depressed following uh, parturition, we might expect just odds are that that is depression and not just the baby blues, right? That's something that requires a lot of attention. I don't know if your experience is different than that, Haley. I don't know that I would agree with those stats. I mean, I saw numbers up to 20% for postpartum depression. Um, 
like I said, we counsel all patients that it's going to be normal to feel, you know, sad and emotional. So I think maybe they don't get reported because we tell them that's normal. And so they don't think that that's something to talk about. I'm not sure if that has something to do with it, but I think 5% is extremely low. Postpartum blues. blues, yeah. Interesting. I think most patients experience it. Interesting. And you're thinking that maybe the depression numbers might be a little bit higher than 10 to 15 percent. Yeah. I, I think that's very possible. I think our, our data, I think a lot of uh, the papers that we read would reference a range of numbers and, and I think those numbers generally were somewhere between about 10 and 20 percent, but probably closer to 20 percent more of the time, right? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, next question. Now that we've talked about the difference between perinatal mental health and postpartum depression, how do you treat a pregnant woman that is depressed? Let's start there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start with this one if that's all right. Go ahead. If, if it was me in my, my future primary care office and a woman's coming in and she's in her first, second trimester and she's reporting symptoms of depression, right? I do the screening tools, the PHQ-9 or the the Edinburgh, what have you, and it comes back positive, yes, she's screening positive for depression. My first thing that I would do, I would talk to the patient about therapy, what their thoughts are around going to see a therapist or possible peer support groups. I would ask her what her physical exercise and daily routines are like. I would, I would ask her kind of get more of a picture of what's going on. I would ask her about her home life. What is her her socioeconomic status, right? What is, what is home life like? Does she have a supportive partner at home? Those things, if they're addressed, can help a lot with depression, especially the psychotherapy, talking to someone about it, a skilled professional. Um, and then of course, after going down these these initial routes i then start to think about like antidepressants if she might need some some help that way some medication to help with the with the symptoms okay very good i might have a different answer we'll see what uh, haley says <laughs> um <clears throat> i agree that it's important to look into exercise what kind of family support support she has at home um how, you know, how sick she's been uh, nutrition-wise and sleep if she's sleeping okay. Talk about things that can help in that way. Um, and then, you know, talk about medications that can help at that point. Um, the research is not great because we're talking about a vulnerable population, which is all pregnant patients. And so it's very hard to, you know, decipher in the research what the exact recommendations are, but going through ACOG and just having been in a lot of these visits, it seems to me the consensus is it's up to you and the patient. It's very individualized. A lot of pregnant patients refuse to take medication, um, no matter what it is, no matter what the the research so shows, and that's their right. Um, and then it'd be appropriate to just to you know go through more avenues of therapy and things like that. But if they are open to medication. Um, and it's severe enough. So, you know, ACOG says if it's moderate to severe depression, according to the screening tools, it is appropriate to treat with medication. And that includes SSRIs, which we'll get into a little bit more uh, later. 
And then there's also your, like, non-typical uh, antidepressants like bupropion, which we'll also get into a little bit more. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to start off with what you said, Cody. One of the mm-hmm. things that was really fascinating to me is I, as I've done these podcasts more and more where I start is in Cochrane Reviews. And um, there's a number of Cochrane Reviews on non-medication approaches to uh, treatment of uh, perinatal depression. Um, so um, not treatment of postpartum depression at this point, right? So this is mm-hmm. treatment of, of perinatal uh, pre-delivery. And um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me is that a lot of this work has been done by one person, uh, Cindy Lee Dennis, who is a doctorate in Toronto. And um, she started off as a, as a BSN, became a master, had a master's in nursing and then got a doctorate. And I couldn't quite find what the doctorate ended up being in. Um, but she had done a couple of these reviews looking at what, what seems to be helpful. And when you talk about um, different kinds of treatments, we talk about uh, psychosocial, which I think you were speaking to, psychological in- interventions. And interestingly enough, uh, Dr. Dennis says, yeah, you know, there's just not a lot of data for that. Um, it just, it, the prenatal classes don't seem to work. In-hospital psychological debriefing doesn't seem to work. And she said, hey, there's only one study on CBT, so, I, you know, the data is just so limited, you can't count this. Um, she said, continuity models don't seem to be helpful. Perhaps if you have a layperson go into the house, she says, and help teach efficacy to people that are pregnant, maybe that helps. Um, but then she says, here's the things that we think do help. If you have in-home nursing visits, that seems to help. Even though the effect wears off after eight weeks, that seems to help because you have specialists. And really, telephone-based support is promising. Um, but what, what's interesting to me is that we have tons of data on CBT, right, that it works in a lot of different settings. And um, I think the hard part for me was it looked like uh, Dr. Dennis has an agenda here, which is anything nurses do is good, <laughs> and anything that anybody else does is bad, right? Because, I mean, the difference between discounting CBT with only one study out there and a, a very limited study on telephone trials and saying this is the best thing since sliced bread. The difference in, in how she you know, talks about those things really kind of surprised me. So I think what I took away from the Cochrane Review was there are a lot of risk factors we've associated with depression, including some of the things you're talking about, which is the sport in the household, and relationships, which, which uh, one of the therapies she talked about being potentially helpful without a lot of data, but again, she you know, seems to have an agenda here. That's, that goes beyond the, the science of this. Um, one of the uh, things she talked about was interpersonal psychotherapy, which can focus on relationships. Um, so, so I was uh, really interested in that. Um, you mentioned potentially exercise. You, you sent me a couple of articles on exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what you found on exercise and what does the data <clears throat> show? Right, so I'm a big fan of exercise and treatment of depression, pregnant or not pregnant. Um, I, and pregnancy is not a contraindication to exercise. You might have to modify some movements and things like that. You can't, you know, do sit-ups when you're eight months pregnant, but just, you know, it's recommended that you, you know, take a walk once a day or just do something to, you know, get your body moving. And I think that exercise has been, um, shown to really increase your, your mood and help with 
things like depression, especially during pregnancy. So you found a randomized controlled trials that said this improves mood in pregnancy. I, the, the article I read seemed to be a position paper by ACOG that you sent me, and what it said was exercise is the right thing to do, period. <laughs> but I didn't see outcomes on it. I don't think, I don't know that I saw outcomes either. I know that the outcomes have been sort of mixed in the past when I last looked at this uh, a number of years ago. When I first looked at this a number of years ago, the, the exercise data seemed to show that if you're in a group of people, the outcomes were a lot better than if you go to the gym on your own and do the exercise. And they, the authors seem to think, I, I think of a meta-analysis, seem to think that maybe the, the effective factor in exercise in early studies was not exercise itself, but some sort of social interaction. I think I've done a podcast with students since, and maybe there's a little bit better data out there now about uh, exercise being helpful in move, mood with the effect size being fairly limited. Right, so this article I sent you is a committee opinion yeah. from ACOG, so the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So I think I'm not here to argue exercise bad. <laughs> I'm here to, to make the case that I'm not sure that exercise changes mood that much. And in fact, as I looked through this, uh, dietary supplements, if you look on Cochrane Reviews, no benefit to at least EPA, DHA, selenium, even though it looks like there's some dysregulation of uh, hormones, even in comparison to what is normal in pregnancy, right? So even when we try to address those uh, kinds of things, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Hypnosis, uh, there's some articles out there on hypnosis. It looks like the data is pretty limited on that. Maybe we'll have better data eventually that gives us a better answer. But the one thing that I think there's a lot of data on, and even the randomized control trials done by epidemiologists, who don't seem to have, generally speaking, don't seem to like antidepressants in the articles they write. They seem to you know, find a reason to say, do anything but. Um, the, the one Cochrane review that did say there's data for this said, hey, there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence for antidepressants to be helpful. They not only help reduce the symptoms of depression, but they have remission associated with them as well. So, so I think um, the, the best evidence I think I found was uh, much like what we do in most of the cases that we see when we treat depression, provide options. The evidence-based options are individual therapy, either cognitive-based uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or sometimes individual psychotherapy has some data behind it. Um, there are a few other therapies that probably are helpful as well, but those seem to have the preponderance of evidence and an antidepressant. But I think if we're neglecting the psychosocial environment, much like you're talking about, Cody, uh, we're not doing our patients a service. And if we don't talk about being physically fit and doing the things that make a healthy baby and a healthy pregnancy, we're not helping our, our patients, right? Right, I wanted to, sorry, just one thing from the exercise article. It says that there needs to be more research on the mood part, but it exercise is has shown to risk re, re, reduce the risk of gestational diabetes, frequency, and C-section. So that makes sense. The stronger you are, you know. Now, interestingly enough, there's a lot of data that uh, diabetes is teratogenic, right? So um, some of the best articles I think we looked at, the article that, that was uh, based on the database, the Georgia article, said, hey, when we, when we subtract out uh, diabetes from, um, from birth defects, um, we see a different signal, right? So, so I think anybody that's exercising and, and is not diabetic is going to have fewer birth defects with their babies and probably healthier babies too. So I'm, again, I'm a fan of the exercise. I don't know what the outcomes are for depression. I think the clearest data for outcomes in depression are antidepressants. Now the question comes up, 
can you be hurting the baby with the antidepressant? You guys ready to tackle this one? Let's do it. Yeah. And the answer is, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully not. All right. So let's start with what we think we know. There's a clear loser. There is a clear loser. What is the clear loser? The clear loser from all of the, the evidence that's out there, some of which is contradictory, most, if not all of the evidence I looked at, kind of pointed the finger at Paxil or paroxetine as being the bad egg in the SSRI family. Um, there are, most, most articles say that there is a small increased chance of increased birth defects. Um, and when I say small, I mean they're, they're saying the general risk for the general population is a 0.1% or 1 in 10,000 risk of a birth defect. And then if you're on these antidepressants, or Paxil specifically, that goes up to 0.24%, or 2.5 people per 10,000. So it's a fairly low risk still, but it is the one that has been shown and suggested to have more adverse outcomes, birth defects reported. Yeah, I I think I saw very similar numbers. I think that's one specific birth defect at the highest risk, which I I can't remember if it was ventricular outflow tract. Yeah, obstruction, which yeah. it goes up to 24 and 10,000, uh, or 2.4 and 10, 2.4 or 24 and, and 10,000, 24 and 10,000, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and so that's a pretty significant. I mean, you don't want to be the yeah. the psychiatrist, the family practice doc, or the OBGYN doc that prescribes Paxil and has that outcome. Right? If Paxil is a no go. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, um, I think the ACOG position has said Paxil is a no go, right? ACOG has said that out loud. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. In the article, one of the articles that ACOG has released, it is the only uh, antidepressant that is class D. Stay away. Yep. So really bad. do you want me to go over that real quick? What the? Yeah. Tell us. The, I, I can't keep track of this. Classes A through D, right? There's A through D and then there's X. So A means there's adequate and well-controlled studies which have failed to demonstrate risk to the fetus. So A is like... go for it. There are no class A uh, uh, antidepressants in pregnancy, however. Category B is animal reproduction studies haven't shown any risk to the fetus, um, but there's also no adequate well-controlled studies in pregnant women because, like we said, it's a vulnerable population. So category B is still considered a go, and bupropion or Wellbutrin is the only class B antidepressant. Which is interesting because I didn't see a lot of of surveillance data that that supported that. Right, so bupropion is a newer drug, um, so there's less research on it, but... 20, 20 years newer, I suppose, but I mean, it's... <laughs> Newish. <laughs> Newish, it's still about 20, 20, 20 to 30 well years old. Not as well studied as the SSRIs, we'll yeah, we, say that. It's interesting that we haven't, we don't have the same kind of surveillance data on that, right? Right. And, and we'll talk about some of the surveillance data outcomes, but yeah, that that it's class B, I think you told me that earlier. It's only I was like, class B. Wait a minute, what? Yeah, I know, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> The rest of the SSRIs besides Paxil is category C. So what that is, is the animal reproduction studies that have been done have shown adverse effects on the fetus, but we don't have enough data on humans to say for sure. So on this drug, it's kind of a, you have to weigh your benefit versus risk with the patient and do individualized therapy for that. Decide if that's something that they want or need. Um, Badly off category D is simply defined as don't. (laughs) Don't give that to pregnant women. Um, there's positive evidence of human fetal 
adverse outcomes. And then X is like the worst one. Just stay away from X altogether. X is bad. X and D are bad. Now, I, I thought I read, and I'm not sure that this was quite accurate. I thought I read that this position paper by ACOG didn't change prescribing practices all that much. What really seemed to drive prescribing practices was when the drug was introduced. So uh, sertraline has never really gone away, but it's not prescribed as often as it was 30 years ago. And their explanation was that citalopram and escitalopram, the cells force behind that, those medications, which was, uh, I think, Forest Pharmaceuticals at the time, um, edged into that market and paroxetine slowly faded away. But it wasn't that people stopped prescribing paroxetine when this position paper came out. And I was surprised by that. A little bit shocked. I was thinking, come on, guys. <laughs> ACOG has said, don't be doing this. right? So, so what is safe? Uh, I think we saw a lot of papers that said maybe this is, maybe this isn't. Um, I think the study I liked the very most was the study, um, which one was it? <laughs> we sent you quite a few. So many studies. And I pulled up a couple <laughs> by myself. This is the Janita uh, Refuse, Refuse, Refuse study. Oh, yes. And this came out of the National Center for Birth Defects and Development. And I liked this study. They had some epidemiologists out of Boston. Uh, they had a genetics group out of uh, out of uh, British Columbia, and it seemed like they went about this in a pretty good way. I, I felt like this was really good data, and yeah. I, I I I want to focus on this article. Yeah, they took they took this information from the National Birth Defect Prevention Study. So, like we've talked about, you can't really design studies with pregnant women. They're a they're a vulnerable population, and we can't do these randomized controlled trials with, with, these, with these women, with these pregnant women. So this study was great. Like you said, it takes, takes this, this data that has been collected from this National Birth Defect Prevention Study, and what they did is they took a lot of the old data that they had up until, I think this was published in 2015, they took all the previous data that had been reported and then intermixed it with all the new data that has been reported since then. And they reanalyzed all the numbers to kind of assess safety profiles, specifically of SSRIs. Um, and this is, I, I like it too. It kind of is a more sure footing, I think for me, uh, from a prescribing standpoint. One of the things I liked about this is they went and they talked to 40,000 women and they said, tell me what illnesses you had during pregnancy. And tell me what medications you took. And then they said specifically, did you ever take citalopram, sertraline, paroxetine, or fluoxetine, right? So we, we, the limitation of the study is we really only know about those four medications. But apparently a lot of people spontaneously reported taking escitalopram or Lexapro as well. But our, I don't think that we're as clearly pulling that data out. So the, the risks of those four SSRIs, which are probably the mainstay SSRIs, they've been the ones that have stuck around the longest, uh, they have the, the longest history. We have pretty good data with those. So 40,000 women, and they were asked about exposure three months before pregnancy up through delivery. And uh, what did they find? Yeah, so again, they kind of found that 
Paxil was kind of a bad egg. They said that a high posterior odds ratio, meaning looking back on it, the odds of, of having, I think they, they reported five specific birth defects were reported with Paxil. Um, like you said, I think the main one is the right ventricular outflow obstruction. Um, and then you can have things like gastroschisis, omphalocele, um, anencephaly, and atrial septal defects. Those were the five I found there. And the second drug that was a little problematic, according to this uh, study, was Prozac or fluoxetine. Yeah. That one also had an increased reporting of, again, the right ventricular outflow obstruction and then craniosynostosis. What is that? That's where the uh, growth plates, the 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 suture, the, the <laughs> what am I saying? The sutures in the, the skull. The sutures in the skull, they fuse early. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I thought, but man, I don't remember all this stuff. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, so if you have a patient that is depressed and is of childbearing years, I think the case is being strongly made here to choose one of two antidepressants. Either you go by the uh, FDA uh, schedule, which is ABCD, and your best option then is clearly bupropion or Welbutrin, or you go by what seems to be a preponderance of data, which is sertraline has a lot of evidence in post-surveillance that it's safe. By the way, interesting note, that surveillance system, Utah, uh, the state of Utah is part of that surveillance system, and I didn't realize that it wasn't all states, it's 10 states that are part of that. <coughs> Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and seven others that I don't remember at this point. Does the high birth rate in Utah have anything to do with that? Possibly? I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. One of the other things that I really liked about that article, though, is they talked about excluding diabetes to make this signal more clear because of the risks of diabetes on, on, uh, on uh, birth defects and, and development. They also excluded known genetic birth defects and chromosomal abnormalities. They excluded known teratogens. This is probably somewhat yield on the on the shelf exam. Don't take methotrexate if you're pregnant. Don't take misoprostol if you're pregnant. Don't take thalidomide if you're pregnant. And then the other big one is uh, uh, the treatment for acne, isotretinoin. Mm -hmm. If Accutane. I'm saying that right, Accutane. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, it's a vitamin E analog, right? A. Maybe. A. Vitamin, vitamin A, a analog. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Glad you guys remember those things that I don't remember. <laughs> we got you. Uh, what was it they said in uh, uh, the Disney show? He was, I was right. He was more right. Was that one the? I don't know. God, I wish I could remember <laughs> Disney movies better. All right. Uh, the other thing that this article pointed out that I thought was really interesting: there's a black box warning in antidepressants. This is high yield, right? It talks about uh, risk of increased suicidal thinking. I think it points out that this is worse in adolescents than adults. And so if you have a teen pregnancy, you can imagine that that creates all of the psychosocial distresses that we talked about earlier. But now you have some questions that we don't know the answers to because a lot of, this, a lot of the surveillance data, we, we don't have as much data about teen pregnancy and SSRI use because of that black box warning. So um, even though there's a preponderance of data with use of SSRIs in populations perhaps over 21, when you start getting into younger populations, that, that data becomes less less clear to us. So um, maybe that weighs the way you're thinking. I probably would say in my own mind, I lean towards Zoloft because of the outcomes data more than the Wellbutrin, the bupropion. However, once I start thinking about uh, younger uh, 
uh, teen pregnancy and I have less data and then I have a class B warning, that, that might change the way I think about how I would treat depression. Unless they have an eating disorder or seizures. Boom. <laughs> Contraindications, never choose your <laughs> And remember that because that is high yield chill. That's stuff. very high yes. yield. You'll get yeah. asked that, I don't know, three to four times. At least. Yeah. And that's just the first day on your uh, OBGYN rotation, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, next question for you guys. Do you try and prevent reemergence of postpartum depression in a perinatal patient who is not currently depressed? So a patient who has previously experienced postpartum depression, um, I think that the likelihood of them getting postpartum depression is increased, having had it before. Um, but I don't know that you automatically, you know, put them back on a medication regimen unless it's indicated. I don't know the answer to that. The Cochrane database kind of went, shrugged their shoulders, I think. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm right. I just, that's what I think. I think the best answer I have is, again, when we talk about patient-centered care, if you've had two episodes of postpartum depression, I think that question becomes a lot easier to answer. I think one episode of postpartum depression is a lot more difficult to answer. And I think the minimum intervention is check often, right? This is somebody right. that, that you might be doing in Edinburgh with. Uh, Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Edinburgh uh, screen with. I'm pretty sure it's Edinburgh. I've been I've been there in Scotland, and I'm pretty sure it's what you say, Edinburgh. Well, <laughs> so I might have said it wrong, even though it's spelled differently. It's spelled weird, yeah. Okay, so I, you know, we're not might... aware of the of the pronunciation over there. <laughs> okay, I guess you can't hold me responsible for things I don't know. Well, actually, you can, right? Um, so, so you might be screening more often for depression in a patient in that case, and I think you'd have that discussion as well. Yeah. There was an AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians. There was an article about, and they mentioned prevention of perinatal depression, and they said we've talked about these. The only interventions with good quality evidence are, like we said, the home health visits, telephone support, and psychotherapy, including CBT and other therapies. They mentioned briefly the use of SSRIs, but they said insufficient data to, to recommend it. So, I think, I think the thing that happens is, is we're weighing things in a way that... Um, is there a possibility of harm from the SSRI? Well, if you're giving an SSRI, clearly you have to be increasing the harm to the fetus, right? I think that's the weighing mechanism. And I'm not sure the data support that weighing mechanism. And they're weighing that against outcomes that don't have a lot of good data for treatment of depression. So um, it's, it's kind of an interesting weight to me, right? Because we talked about those outcomes earlier. And do you, do you send somebody to do something that has limited you know, evidence for efficacy? Or do you send somebody for something that clearly has evidence for efficacy if you're avoiding the medications that cause uh, fetal injury? And, and I think in my mind, I probably weigh those things differently. But I, I think in a world where um, any treatment for mental health is regarded as the last stop, you shouldn't do it unless you have to, which I, you know, I don't understand that mindset completely, I get where people come up with different weighing mechanisms. I think especially during pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, it, if we're talking Paxil, clearly, yes, right? If we're talking <coughs> sertraline, maybe not. Maybe we should just give the treatment that we know works, right? But I don't, I, again, it's not my body. <laughs> um, and I think that gets back to the idea of, you know, how do you talk to patients and how do you present the options and 
you know, there's, there's limited data that telephone calls work, but we can try that if you want to do that. There's limited data, there's fair data that CBT helps in all settings with depression. Um, do you want to try that? Um, yeah, again, I, I start to get jaded after a while that we do everything we can to avoid treating people with things that clearly work and have uh, limited evidence of harm. Like exercise, right? It clearly helps everybody with everything. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next question I have. Um, is there such thing as perinatal depression for dads? Hmm. I'm going to say yes, although I haven't seen it, and I haven't seen reports or studies on it. I just, I imagine it's out there, but... It's something I haven't seen personally or researched myself. But. Haley, oh. you look uh, <laughs> perplexed by this. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to say no, but I do think that dealing with a pregnant partner would be difficult. Can be. <laughs> Has the possibility of being difficult sometimes. Remotely. Just, just, it's possible. So I don't know the answer to this. I do know that uh, there's two, two reasons I asked this question. The first is... Um, I think we've talked in previous podcasts that generally speaking, we do a, a poor job of identifying depression in traditional clinical settings, primary care settings across the board. Uh, and there's at least uh, one comment that was made in one of the articles that I read that even, even OBGYN, which has this terrible fear about uh, postpartum psychosis, um, even OBGYN isn't stellar at this, even though it sounds like your experience is very different than that, that the clinics you were at were doing a great job looking for this. Um, so the first part of this is we need to make sure that we're screening for depression, um, that it really has a high degree of morbidity associated with it. Um, but the second part of this is we might need to be asking about um, partners, maybe not just dads, I think the article I, I read was, was dads, but partners, right? Partners and, and the risk of perinatal depression in partners. I think there might be something out there. I think it's probably too early to, to tell anybody to do anything about this, but I suspect we're going to know more about that over the next decade based on the whispers I saw in some of the articles. Hmm. it be interesting to see that develop if it does. Yeah, or, or <laughs> fade into oblivion if it we'll does. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see over time. I definitely think that, you know, good support at home, including, you know, if you have a partner that they're there to help you is important. And, and if they have depression beforehand that's not taken care of, they're not able to take care of themselves, and that translates to not being able to help you. So I agree that, you know, post or primary care should do a better job of recognizing depression just in general. In general, yeah, we, we need to do a better job in general. Again, I was very heartened to hear how aggressively your clinics that you've worked at have been screening for depression. Yes. Um, I think the other... The other thing to think about in this, when you talk about caregivers, I, I would hate to say that any spouse is a caregiver mm -hmm. to a pregnant uh, person, but I, I would hasten to add that when we think about caregiver models, somebody who needs more help than they typically do, we're thinking about uh, dementia care and end-of-life care in some ways, and I don't think that's a great model, but it's something that's a very important part of those kinds of models, and so maybe uh, as we think about spousal support, there's something there. Well, and if you think about hyperemesis gravidarum, for example, those patients cannot take care of themselves. They have to be hospitalized for fluids and, you know, just maintenance. 
And so if your partner does have HG or severe nausea and vomiting of pregnancy and they can't get out of bed, we might run into that model a little bit more. Yeah. Or we might think about it the other way, which is a healthy partner is more able to help in those settings too. And, right. And you want the healthiest partner you can. Or you have, you know, patients on bed rest, patients who can't really do yeah. much. Lifting restrictions, things like that. Yeah. So there's, there might be something there. Yeah. Might, might be. But might I think be. that in part gets back to some of the things that Cody talked about earlier, which is the psychosocial assessment. What are the supports you have in the environment and how, how well can you leverage those to have a, the most successful pregnancy possible? Right. Because it doesn't have to be your partner. It can be family. It can be friends. It can be, you know, coworkers, whoever's around you. You're attending. No. You're attending. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. The last question I have is, or there are two questions, but I'm going to throw them out as one question. What are the risks to a baby from a depressed mother? And I, and I, I think we've talked about postpartum depression sometime leading, leading to injury to the baby. I tend to think that that's largely postpartum psychosis. So let's get rid of that one for now. What are the risks to a baby from a depressed mother? And what are the risks of depression on fetal development? Did you guys find anything that was really solid about that? Uh, if so, what did you find that was solid? If not, what did you find that's out there that, that might be uh, that might be a counterbalance to the idea that we only look at the risk of antidepressants on, on um, fetal development, but there might be something about depression that is fetally damaging as well. Cody, I think you're nodding your head. Yeah, so as far as untreated depression goes in the pregnant mother, first, I mean, there are health concerns for her, right? Um, we talked, I think you mentioned briefly before, you know, increased risk of suicide. Um, there's problems with mother-child relationships. There are issues for the mother specifically. There's increased risk of preeclampsia and eclampsia diagnoses. Um, and there's a mild to moderate risk of preterm delivery and low birth weight for these untreated depressed mothers for delivery. And then what I found for the baby is it, the untreated depression in the mother can impact the baby as far as after birth, they're more irritable, they have less activity, um, they're not as attentive, they don't have as many facial expressions. I think the studies I looked at, they drew blood levels and they had the same kind of blood chemistry panels that depressed patients have increased cortisol, decreased serotonin and dopamine. And down the road, I think that they've shown some developmental delays with these, with these babies as well, which I think is, is pretty interesting. We talk about the risks of being on medications for these, for these babies, right? There are obvious and reported, well-reported data of adverse Im uh, effects of untreated depression as well. I don't think that any of the articles that we read that talked about risks of antidepressants ever mentioned by the way there are quantifiable risks uh, uh, there are quantifiable risks of depression to the fetus and i think that's where it becomes even more difficult to weigh some of these things out and i think are important parts of the discussion right um, I, I go back in my mind quite often to uh, the romania nursery studies right or, or data where 
uh, babies were put in cribs. They didn't have interactions with their with anybody. There wasn't reciprocal facial interactions, and they think that that's an important part of development. That seems to be, and if you have a depressed mother who can't get out of bed, right? Um, those facial interactions. M- mothers are great, by the way. Depressed mothers are great. I'm n- I'm not saying <laughs> anything about mothers. Mothers across the board are always amazing to me. They're all they do these great things, but if they're not the same mother that they could be because of depression, if that gets in the way, I think we also have to think about fetal impacts as well. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, I also think that looking, we didn't talk about specific fetal adverse effects of um, using antidepressants. We just talked about, you know, maybe some congenital malformations, but we didn't talk about once baby is born. Um, I know that if you have a mom on an SSRI when they're delivering, you know, respiratory therapy has to be in the room just because, you know, they're, they're kind of less, um, APGAR scores go down a little bit. APGAR scores go down There seems to be something. Yeah. um, And then I think there's a withdrawal syndrome associated with this as well, right? So respiratory drive is kind of decreased. Um, there's, can be, there's a question of pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. in neonates whose moms have been on SSRIs. So uh, I think there's risks to both, but when you look at treating someone with antidepressants, like you're helping t- two patients, right? You're helping both mom and baby, whereas if mom's just depressed, you know, there's no one's being helped in that situation, and there's adverse effects from that too. The SSRIs all clearly cross the placenta. Yes. Uh, so the baby is being treated for depression when born so to speak. Yeah. And we're aware of discontinuation syndromes, and I think those are kinds of things that show up on the shelf exam as well. Stopping an antidepressant, an SSRI specifically, suddenly, uh, especially in the short half-life antidepressants, venlafaxine, desvenlafaxine, uh, paroxetine, so Paxilin effects are, and uh, what's the name for desvenlafaxine? It's slipping my mind right now. It's slipping my mind as well right now. So uh, these medications with short half-life will probably exacerbate the withdrawal syndrome in, in fetuses, or in babies, sorry, that, are, uh, that have just been born. Um, the other thing that uh, I think really struck me, and I don't know if you came across any data on this, depression is associated with increased eclampsia and preeclampsia. Any idea why? Um, my guess and initial thought would be similar to, I don't know, gestational hypertension. If you're not taking care of yourself, exercising, going to your prenatal health appointments, where we monitor blood pressure and all those things, maybe you're slipping through the cracks and, you know, your preeclampsia could have been prevented or treated or monitored at the very least. Something along those lines. I wondered if there was a biochemical uh, reason for that, something that, uh, some of the, I think one of the articles that you shared with me, Cody, talked about some of the laboratory differences that we find between um, depressed women who are pregnant and non-depressed or undepressed women that are pregnant. Uh, so I wonder if there was something along those lines. I mean, if your catecholamine level's high, your blood pressure could be increased your whole pregnancy. Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, the cortisol levels maybe have something to do with it as well. <clears throat> I did see the cortisol, and, and there seems to be something about cortisol and, and maybe development later on, which you mentioned too. The other, the other thing, and I, uh, this keeps slipping my mind, but the other thing that I think we wanted to talk about briefly was antidepressants and uh, nursing. Yeah, so it's a, it's a subject that maybe we don't have a ton of time to, 
to dive into each medicine and and how well they they enter the breast milk and and all of that but we did find a little bit of evidence um, saying that most of them do enter the breast milk but perhaps sertraline enters at a decreased amount maybe not as active in, in breast milk I'm not sure if you found anything concrete Haley um, no that's about what I found and it's not recommended that you monitor levels or anything in the baby so it's just kind of you know if the mom's on the medication it just is what it is you kind of just know that it's happening maybe yeah I did find like toxicity signs in the baby if they are getting too much of the metabolites through the breast milk. Um, toxicities include, I mean, the infant will look lethargic. They'll be irritable beyond like your regular soothing methods and uh, they'll have impaired feeding as well. Mm. So, I mean, if those signs start to show up, maybe you think, maybe you think about the antidepressant that they're on. But it looks like sertraline is probably the safest or safer option, at least with the ones that have been studied. So very, very difficult data. We've talked about that before. You can't start randomized control trials and say, we want to see if adding a medication for depression hurts your baby through breastfeeding. Uh, as I recall, when I looked at some of the data that was collected years ago on sertraline, what they did is they collected breast milk samples and then they looked for the for uh, sertraline in the in the samples and and I think they tried to correlate that with dose that was given but I don't I don't recall well at this time so. my outline was different than your outline a, a bit <laughs> a lot <laughs> I think we covered the same points what yeah. what uh, have we not addressed I think that we hit all of the things that me and Haley had wanted to talk about yeah I think we did a good job Anything uh, take home that we should talk about before we stop? Um, I think that it's really easy to get lost in all the, the data and research. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, when you have a patient sitting in front of you, it's very hard to de determine if their, you know, symptoms are from pregnancy or if they're depressed or both. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's up to you to just sit down with your patient go over what their symptoms are, um, and then the ACOG recommendation is that if they meet criteria for moderate to severe depression, then you initiate the discussion about starting um, medication, which in my opinion, Zoloft or uh, Sertraline and Bupropion or Wellbutrin are the drugs of choice in this case. I agree. And, and I think I would only add to that, that in moderate to severe depression, I would urge, strongly urge my patients, I, I would discuss the possibility of doing both the medication and psychotherapy. It seems like, uh, at least with our data on non-pregnant women, the combination of the two has the best outcome. For severe depression, it looks like, uh, generally speaking, only antidepressants are helpful, and uh, as somebody moves into less severe depression, that psychotherapy becomes increasingly helpful. Yeah, I think that in first aid, it said that the SSRI would be the best initial treatment, but SSRI plus therapy would be the best, like, complete treatment. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I like that. Cody, take home. My take home is that there are adverse effects on both mother and baby for untreated depression, right? I know there are a lot of mothers that are going to be hesitant to start something like this while they're pregnant. 
I think it's important for them to know the consequences of, of either choice, right? Of treating versus not treating. I think it's important for us to know as providers what those outcomes might be and to how to best counsel them through that process. I think my take home is um, I, I became more attentive to the idea of the psychosocial needs of pregnant women leading up to um, parturition that uh, especially perhaps especially in newly uh, new mothers maybe is the way to, to say this uh, confidence in knowing how to take care of a baby social supports contact um, learning how to be a mother I, th I think society you know maybe in an agricultural society did a better job with with passing along those traditions and and those steps that seem to be helpful and and thinking about those has kind of got my mind churning and the other thing I think that I took away from this is there are a lot of really interesting things that people are looking at to try and improve outcomes in depression even though we talk about you know you started SSRI and everything's better for the for the shelf exam, right? <laughs> or you send somebody to psychotherapy for the shelf exam. Sertraline doesn't work for everybody, and for some people, only proxetine seems to help, right? I've seen that in the mm -hmm. past. And now, what do you do, right? These mm -hmm. questions become increasingly complicated when you're actually in that setting. And the more treatment options that we have to not have to use proxetine, I think the better off we are. Right? So, so I'm I'm very hopeful that the work being done by uh, Dr. Dennis leads us to additional pathways that, that um, perhaps end up augmenting antidepressants and psychotherapy um, and help us better identify who is truly depressed and who's pregnant and having a very physically difficult pregnancy, right? So that's what those were kind of my take homes. Anything else you two have to add? No. I don't think so. This is likely the last podcast that Haley and I will be on, so that's a, that's a little sad, but it's been so fun to, to record these. That's a little sad. It's only a little sad. Yeah, you say that with this gleam in your eye. I, this is also your last moment on a rotation with me, right? Yeah, you guys will take off. Um, we'll, I'll do your evaluations. Unless you guys want to hang around for those, they'll say, these are spectacular students, and I was so glad they came back. I really, really enjoyed working with you two last year, and it was a pleasure having the two of you back. Thank you so much for being such wonderful students and for developing such a great topic. On that note, team out. Team out. <laughs>